Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Charlie Morrow has worn many hats over the course of his long career. He's a composer, sound artist, conceptualist, and performer whose creative projects have included chanting and healing works, concert performances, pop music arrangements, museum and gallery installations, hospital sound environments, large-scale festival events, radio and TV broadcasts, film soundtracks, commercial sound design, and advertising jingles. He's also the composer and producer of this show's theme music. And now... He's embarked on a project called Immerse, Sound, Light, Space, which consists of events, a book that's in development, and 40-plus podcasts with people in the field of immersion. It is my great pleasure that I welcome Charlie Morrow back to our show. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Lynn. What a treat to hear your voice. (laughs) Well, same here. Uh, And should I say welcome back to BAI? Didn't you once produce a show here? I certainly did. Um, my goodness, uh, one of my earliest productions was a series of shows for children. Mm-hmm. And each one of them had a different arrangement of loudspeakers. And one, the speakers would be in the front of the room and in the back of the room where you, the listeners, were working. Each week, they'd set up the different <clears throat> different speaker arrangements. So it was um, four different setups <laughs> one with the speaker out of the room one with the speaker up mm-hmm. and down one front and back and then uh, one you sort of carried around with you <laughs> but this Very, was a long time ago yeah, 1977 <laughs> or so exactly and one of our most amazing guests on well marshall efron was on the show and also we had a guy named don cox who was the uh, field marshal of the black panthers who was an absolutely charming and magical guest Well, let's talk about this current project. What's immersive sound? Immersive sound is the sound that seems to your ears and your mind to form a world around you. So it's sort of the connection between your inner world and the outer world. And while all sound does this, it does it in varying degrees. I mean, my best example is the difference between swimming and taking a shower. So in a shower or being caught in the rain, you're aware that the water's coming in a direction and falling on you. However, if you're swimming and you're underwater, then you're completely immersed. And uh, I, th- I think that's that's the kind of immersion that, mm-hmm. that I'm examining in this, in this series. And you have a series of podcasts with some uh, of the famous people. Um, who are connected to immersion. Um, is it mostly about music? No, quite the contrary. It's about every sort of field that, um, that I, it's, these are all collaborators of mine that I've worked on projects in fields um, such as acoustics, uh, poetry, uh, theater, public events, uh, marketing, um, um, and uh, art exhibits. Um, so uh, psychology how, and 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 uh can you name a few of them i could name them all actually, i know and but... say a word about them but um the, the first one on the list was a guy i met in 1981 named michael gerson mm-hmm. and um he is no longer with us he regrettably died very young at the age of 51 and he was the one who came up with the math uh for which most of the uh, immersive 
sound that's created electronically is made from, as well as he was the guy who made uh, it possible for digital sound to sound good. He mm-hmm. created um, methods of, of, of really improving the quality of digital sound. That's what the broadcast has in it. It's what CDs have in them and so forth. He was a the Einstein of immersive immersive sound, uh, but regrettably, he never lived to reap the benefits himself. And he seemed more to care about uh, music and experience and uh, solving problems than any material benefits. Well, one of the people you've interviewed recently is Anne Lockwood, a New Zealand-born American composer and academic musician who taught electronic music at, at Vassar College. What made her a uh, a good subject for this series? Well, she's a very special person in that uh, when I first was doing uh, sound for planetariums, I did a piece for the Hayden Planetariums, uh, and I uh, with poet Jerry Rothenberg and, and uh, Carolee Schneemann, performance artist. We had a little evening. And I wanted to use sounds from outer space, and I collected pulsar sounds. Oh. And around that time, Anea got in touch with me, and she had collected pulsar sounds. She was visiting from England. She had, although born in New Zealand, was uh, doing all sorts of art practice in England. And um, she was famous for planting pianos in gardens uh, and, and in ponds and um, collecting the sounds from the universe and so forth. And she was a really wonderful, like-minded person um, who, from the very start, uh, saw no difference between natural sound, um, the sound of objects, and music. And so she interested me. And she actually was the first artist uh, on my label at the time. I started the label of cassettes called New Wilderness um, Audiographics, and Anea was the... uh, the very first artist on that on that label. Uh, I built a studio. I think, you know, I built a studio at home actually to do that BAI show <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, uh, up on West End Avenue. And um, and she came and visited the studio and we started playing with sound and we've had a lifelong association in this area. In fact, she's also the announcer for um for our immerse show. Well, some of the technologies... This, this week, she's the subject. <laughs> some of the technologies you address are gesture, cave paintings, language, storytelling, books, recorded sound, cinema, virtual realities. That's a wide range of things. What do they all have in common, other than the fact that you're doing this? Well, um, it, I guess it was um, the vision uh, of, of, of uh, an astrophysicist, um, who explored immersivity ahead of me? Uh, Kachung Yu, who's out out at um, in in um, Denver, Colorado, and Kachung wrote about the prehistory of planetarium experiences. What came before planetariums? And of course, uh, he starts back with uh, you know the way the mind operated. Um, people sitting around a campfire, and as each new technology came in, the sort of screen. Uh, in in our brains uh, expanded through each of these technologies. So it was Kachin Yoon's idea of the kind of expanded screen of immersive experience um, leading up to, uh, this was all pre-technology in the sense of pre-electronics, pre-electricity that led me to uh, tie all of this together. So I'm standing on the back of Kachin Yu, the astrophysicist and educator. 
And how can people access this these podcasts? Are they available on all the usual podcast places? They are. Um, you can get them on uh, Amazon, on Podbean, um, on, on Apple, uh, on Google, um, or on our own page. Uh, if you go to uh, www.charliemorrow.com, immerse-podcast. Uh, so we're hoping to <clears throat> improve the way the ease with which people can find it. We're just up a couple of weeks and uh, takes it, it's, it's a new art for me to make it, make it easy for people to find things on the internet. But you mentioned, there. you mentioned your sometime collaborator, the poet Jerome Rothenberg earlier. He once wrote about you that quote, you're both the leading proponent of an act of ethnopoetics and avant-garde musical performance and a master of new technologies as they come into contemporary practice. That's a lot. A lot. You, you write that your work has taken you into two large areas, numbers and the language of non-humans. Both interests, you say, derive from chanting music, which um, has been a, a central concern? Absolutely. Well, I think... Uh, uh, with reading, uh, I, I started to um, understand sound as carrying information beyond language. So well, you say you remember I, hearing things before you were born. I, I do. I had a strange. I can barely experience. remember things I heard three weeks ago. Well, uh, I think that's natural. Probably you remember before you were born better than three weeks ago. <laughs> so, so go on. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just rattling on. But um, Okay, but at the same time that you, we're talking about all these things, you've had a side career as a composer of music that's used in advertising. You wrote jingles for TV ads for Diet Coke, Hefty Trash Bags, um, the very memorable Take the Train to the Plane for the MTA. You've done jazz recordings. You're all over the place. I suppose I am. I've enjoyed any place where uh, music is made and could be made well. In that respect, I thought that it was amazing to be born mm. into the time that I have been where um, with, you know, with some organizational skills and a small recording studio, one could, um, one could be a, you know, a source of a lot of different kinds of music. And this has been going on for a while. I, I saw an essay in 1970, from 1975 where Tom Johnson wrote that you're unpredictable and that you're, quote, quite capable of turning out a TV jingle in the morning, working on an atonal score in the afternoon, and improvising on a Tibetan scale with the New Wilderness Preservation Society in the evening. Now, is there something that ties them all together other than the fact that they all interest you? Well, I think what ties it all together is breath and language and the fascinating and good use of them all. I think in this respect, a, a jingle, <clears throat> a prayer, a pop song, all of them are excellent use of, um, of the human faculty of creating and listening. So, uh, you know, that would be the central concern. Is it, is it relevant to know that both of your parents were psychiatrists? Does, did that actually, have an effect uh, on on all of these interests? Well, first of all, I was raised in a, in a home with a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that you have to be have a great sense of humor to to be a psychiatrist. I mean, I remember some. I was at a party once, uh, 
And someone asked my dad, how in the world can you stand to listen to all of that stuff day in, day out? How do you go from patient to patient? He says, who listens? (laughs) Oh, gee. I'm sure the patients would have loved hearing that. <laughs> now, I fun- think remarks like that made his sessions quite lively. I mean, I, mean, I know he was an intent listener, but he yeah. he made he had a nice way of making light of things. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have been raised by two humor-loving parents. <laughs> and didn't he wear a bowler or something that you're famous for wearing? It's true. Well, when my dad passed away... Um, I wanted something to remember him by. And um, I went up into the attic. Uh, At that time, my parents' house was in Passaic, New Jersey. And up in the attic, under the eaves, I found a fancy hat box. And in it was a bowler hat with my dad's initials. And it was my size, which was great because he was a couple of sizes smaller than me. I have a fatter head. (laughs) I put it on and it was great. I uh, I had a my initials put next to his. And from that point on, I've always worn a bowler as sort of my uh, my uniform of Dada or Fluxus or Daddy. I'm speaking with Charlie Morrow here on Leonard Lopate Show on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Wasn't Art Garfunkel one of your classmates at Columbia? Did he introduce you to the commercial music business? He most certainly did. Um, he was, uh, was was a classmate at Columbia College. And then when he and Paul Simon had their first uh, work with Columbia Records, he called me up and asked me to uh, think with him about the sound, the sound of of the accompaniments for his, uh, particularly the song, the, you know, was the um, lingering conversation. And uh, Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Parsley Sage was in that. And so I devised um, the use of the precursor, a kind of clavichord sound, uh, like a harpsichord, and um, using that semi-archaic sound as as the sound design for for those pieces and a little natural sound as well. And and you also, uh, uh, as a result, I guess, worked as an arranger and line producer for John Hammond, the legendary... Uh, John Hammond of Columbia Records, providing arrangements for recordings not only for Simon and Garfunkel, but also The Rascals and Vanilla Fudge. It's true. You've been all um, over the place, Charlie. It's true. I'm a restless soul. (laughs) In fact, I'm talking to you now from Helsinki, Finland. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, is there concern in Helsinki about the possibility that Finland may join NATO? Is that something that's Big in the news there? Huge. Uh, there was a huge demonstration, a uh, pro-Ukraine um, uh, demonstration last night in Helsinki. And um, in the last week, uh, the um, Sweden and Finland have begun the movement towards joining NATO. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, um, Mr. Putin has warned everybody, if you do, that'll be it. And so... I think um, people are rethinking in this part of the world, you know, that they don't want to see what happens in Ukraine happen here. I mean, I think the general feeling is that what's going on in Ukraine could easily, you know, if it's not stopped there, it's coming here to the Baltics and it could come easily to Poland. I mean, it could go anywhere. I mean, there's no, 
well, no end to this the, this particular kind of strategy. So um, everybody has completely changed their mind from where they were, say, two months ago, okay. and um, putting their heads together. And Finland has an 800-mile border with Russia. But you've been there, and you, spare, you split your time between Helsinki and Barton, Vermont? It's true. I... Uh, I like the north. Barton, Vermont is uh, only um, 30 miles from the Canadian, French-Canadian border, and it's a high altitude. I, I like cool climates. I'm an asthmatic. It's one of the reasons I learned to play the trumpet. And probably a lot of my interest in speech and breath is from all of this, trying to live with my asthma. And uh, in Finland, um, you know, I like the very cool Nordic climate and the way of... Uh, which people treat each other so well. They're very thoughtful towards one another traditionally. And uh, this border, of course, is a lot to think about because it's, you know, Finland was part of Sweden for 800 years, and then Russia took over. Mm. And at that time, the Tsar um, was very kind to this area. It was treated like a protectorate rather than a subjugated country. And, and, when, uh, and, when, the, the, and when the Tsar decided to... Uh, move Russia into the, the European orbit, he established St. Petersburg, which is near the, the border with Finland, isn't it? Exactly. Very, very much near the border. And at that time, the border was different as far as Finland's concerned, because uh, in the Second World War, one third of Finland, including the city of uh, Viper, Viberg, um, w you know, was lopped off and hmm. given by the uh, allies to Russia. Well, that sounds like something we're still going through now. <laughs> At least it wasn't invaded. Um, so, um, well, well, actually, it was because um, when the Russian Revolution occurred, there was a small revolution. There was a revolution of the Reds and the Whites here in Finland. And at that point, Finland became a modern nation and has been on its own ever since. However, at a certain point, Hitler's troops came up through this area and was allied with Finland briefly. But when, uh, when a couple of shiploads of Jews were sent to the camps, the, the Nazis were thrown out of Finland at that time in the late 30s. And at that point, Russia zoomed in to try to take over and fought a very bitter war in which they lost huge losses of Russians because they had sent troops from parts of Russia not used to the north and cold, and it was a very, really colder climate then. Mm -hmm. So the Finns drove the Russians out, and it was only as because of the deal with the um, allies that Russia was able to remove part of Finland. And I think that's why at this point, nobody here is willing to believe that what's going on in Ukraine is going to just stop there if it isn't stopped. Well, it, uh, on one level, it, some of the things that he says, Putin, sound like empty threats, but considering what's going on in Ukraine right now, I suspect that many people in Finland have good reason to be concerned. It's so close, and, uh, you know, they can... Right across the they, border. Exactly. Well, Do and, people and speak also, Russian in Finland? Any people speaking Russian? Not as much as in the past. Mm -hmm. Certainly at one point it was as 
was, I think, a third language that, you know, Swedish and Finnish are both spoken here. And that, that and, and during the Russian years, of course, people did speak Russian. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, uh, so, it's less so in my, in, I say, uh, from my generation, I'm, uh, you know, I'm 80. So people who are under 60 don't, there's, there's far less Russian speakers. Now, do you, uh, as somebody who's interested in music in general, is there a Finnish music? Oh, quite definitely. Um, Which would be different than than Swedish or or Norwegian or Russian? It depends at what point in history you're talking about. I think um, right now one of the the biggest differences between those various musics would be the language that they're that they're in. So um, in a pop in pop, for example, there's excellent uh, pop music in Finnish. It's very good Finnish rap and very good pop music in Swedish and in Norwegian and in Danish. Uh, although there's English language hits created some of the great hit makers on the contemporary scene for the last uh, 25, 30 years have come from the Nordic countries. So it's a, both an international and a local musical culture. Uh, there are, of course, folk music traditions. Uh, but then one of the distinguishing feature of this part of the world is the individualism. And there's a lot of very, very different kinds of poets, writers, playwrights, and musicians who are just totally individualistic. Uh, that's not to say there wasn't a very kind of romantic Nordic style that evolved across the late 1800s and into the early 20th century. Well, we... Uh, I do think of uh, the music of Sweden, for example, as being uniquely Swedish. But I guess it's we can just say there's Nordic music, right? Absolutely. But uh, there is definitely uh, Swedish music, Norwegian music, Finnish music, and, uh, and Danish music uh, all along the way and various folk traditions. Uh, in fact, that the uh, there still is a lot of regional dialects spoken Throughout the Nordic countries, people haven't all been uh, homogenized into speaking a national mm-hmm. language of, of of each of these countries. There's still regional dialects. It's still in that and in, in that way, there's still a bit of the old-fashioned life still there, and sonically. Then, and and then many people speak English all over the world. Oh, for sure, people speak English very well here. Mm-hmm. Now. The I mentioned that you compose the music, the theme music for this show. That comes from a series of jazz recordings. Uh, it's true. <laughs> so how did you come to create jazz recordings? Uh, you even did jazz recordings. Uh, I have a, a CD of um, original jazz recordings that you did for... Uh, pharmaceutical, 3M pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so people would commission you to, to do jazz recordings? It's true. Uh, as a um, musician, um, as a, what would say, a musician for hire, a contract composer, I would write various assignments that uh, interested me. Uh, and uh, in the case 
jazz has always been a big interest of mine ever since I was a kid. And so I learned to do jazz arranging and uh, play jazz in various uh, styles. Uh, when I was, um, oh, I'm trying to think, I must have been three uh, living in Rutherford, New Jersey. My cousin Wally Sisson came down with his family from Boston and he played the trumpet. And well, I'll, Wally inspired me to become a trumpet player. And later on, he was a decade or so older than I. Um, I came up to see him in Boston, and he introduced me to a lot of different jazz, local jazz players. And uh, from that, uh, I became a free improviser when I first came to New York to study at Columbia. And so I've been work working as a free improviser. And also, I think as a commercial writer, most of my commercial music has either had classical or jazz, um, you know, elements to it um, before it became more electronic. So the musical roots for me have always been, um, you know, in, in jazz and, and classical music. So those are, you know, that's just what I came up with. <laughs> and you put together a number of all-star groups over the years, Um I, I, is that as easy as it? I mean, it sounds difficult to me to just suddenly say, "Hey, Benny Green, um, you want to do something with uh, with Buster Williams and, and Lenny White?" Or <laughs> you have a whole bunch of different great musicians that you've that you've recorded with over the years. They they're just open to getting together and and playing your music. I don't think that that's it. A totally accurate picture. I think when when I have a project, I have over my life had a number of key collaborators. Collaboration is really what is the you know my my mo, and so I'm very proud to have a number of people whose work I admire. Fine recording engineers like uh, Jay Messina, who did that recording that you've got there, who's recorded so many great groups, and the the relationship with the record plant. And I met a lot of good musicians through them. When I first came up as a at, at high school, I had a a girlfriend who was a jazz pianist, and she introduced me to you know Paul Modian and uh, Bill Evans and uh, Not quite a few of the people on the scene. So I had personal relationships. And when I first started getting work in in commercials and film score, I was able to talk to individuals who had groups and say, "Would you?" Be interested in doing a project how much should it cost to you know work out the financial part of it and the contractual part of it and just by being a, a good friend <laughs> was able to learn from my 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 associates and uh, and let and they helped me do what i did i i can't say that i could have done any any project in my life without the collaboration of the people who are in it and I mean, that, that's what Immerse is about. It's about joining together with people who had extraordinary gifts and, and creating something that was of us both. Also with animals, no? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Always had a dog when I was a kid. But and, you even uh, have fish sounds. I did, I did, yeah. I, uh, I had a curious experience where I discovered through recordings, I mean, it's always been, the studio has always been the kind of lens through which I found my way into uh, various areas. So I had really interesting scientific recordings of fish, 
And so I decided I would try to do a concert for fish because it seemed like the fish language was transactionally simple enough that I could fool myself or maybe the fish into having some kind of a simple dialogue. And so um, we actually, uh, I had at that time a group called the, I was working with a group of collaborators. We called ourselves the New Wilderness Preservation Band. (laughs) And um, uh, we uh, did various kinds of improvisations and art. Every time, we'd, every time we did a concert, we'd have a guest, like a guest poet or a guest filmmaker. We had guests from the uh, first communities of New York, from the Native American Community House. And when it came time to explore the animal language, we first did animal language in our concerts at Washington Square Church. And that led naturally to trying to do it in, <laughs> in real life. And um, as it turned out, the... Fish concert I gave was on the morning after Nixon resigned, and so that particular event put me uh, on the uh, you know on, on the stage of, of, of the music business as a as a fish concert guy because <laughs> everything that was news came out and reported on that the Times, all the TV channels, and so forth. It was uh, quite something, I think. At that moment of impeachment, we needed something to laugh at, and fish, fish, fish music you're listening, was a giggle. You're listening to Leonard. If you think this is this conversation is getting fishy, let me tell you, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. back with Charlie Morrow here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Charlie's done many things over the course of his career. His latest project is Immerse, Sound, Light, and Space. And can you explain what that piece was about, what we just played? Well, you heard a piece um, that I did as a composition for the West German radio station, WDR, uh, for a workshop of experimental sound. And that was the last piece I did when my producer was finally was retiring. And it was, uh, it was about how human beings, um, you know, use the world until there's nothing left. And, um, it was uh, about the appetite we have to eat, eat food and then finally eat the world itself. 
And so that was the theme song. And that was the sound of a, uh, a threshing machine, an old Swedish threshing machine and uh, Bolren from Ireland and a solo singer, an Irish singer. So uh, looking over the course of your career, you began playing trumpet at 10. Then you played bugle for the uh, when you were a Boy Scout. Uh, and then since then, uh, you, well, th- then you got involved with rock and roll for a while. You studied with Stefan Volpe, who's noted for his unconventional works. Um, you've also talked about being inspired by Navajo lo- love songs, uh, The Sounds of Fish, and uh, you've performed using conch shells, cow and goat horns, Jews harp, ocarina, homemade electronics. So n- everything is possible? I think it's possible to make music with anything. Uh-huh. I mean, when I was uh, just a little kid, I used to gather my friends together and we would make noise and, you know, in the living room with kitchen implements and so forth. And uh, I don't I don't think it's changed. <laughs> but uh, you say that you actually got started with music partly because you had asthma and you just and you started playing trumpet at 10. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was. um I'd played the piano. Well, there was another story as well, which was um, there was a piano in the house. But my my parents, both being psychiatrists, um, they had their basement, the basement of the house fitted out for their clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so therefore, it wasn't possible to play piano on the first floor without disturbing um, these uh, sessions in which my father wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, I began playing the trumpet, which I could do was more portable up on the second and third floor mm-hmm. uh, of our family outside. house. Or you could go outside. <laughs> yeah, or outside, right. <laughs> so uh, th- that had led you to do work focused on breath and vocalization, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Perhaps one of the most interesting periods of my work was when I used breath as a way to understand, as a kind of language in itself people listening to each other's breathing and did, you know, a healing ceremonies in which people would make themselves whole, not necessarily well, but through listening to breathing. And I uh, did a, quite a number of, of, of breath pieces and even put together a manual on how to use breath and listening, you know, to create focus and uh, commonality. But were you attracted to uh, avant-garde music from the start? Because at 15, weren't you already introducing chance, surprise, interruption, odd meter, and and humor into your compositions or what you were trying to play? Absolutely. But of co- at that point, at the age of 15, um, I was not that familiar with what people were doing in experimental music. I had only heard, I'd heard some recordings like Stravinsky or Aaron Copland, and, uh, but I was not that deep into what, would, what, what was going on. I didn't know about the electronic music that people were doing in various laboratories and so forth. So um, I think my, I fell into it, fell into what I did naturally is kind of part of my personality. I mean, surprise, for example, um, was was a joke. I, I think some of my jokes led to me being uh, where 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 I went to. These 
that's why I said I thought my parents' good sense of humor was, in fact, um, you know, the, where, where a lot of my inspiration came from. So in a surprise situation, unknown to the conductor of our Interlochen National Music Camp Orchestra, I arranged that at a certain point, I think it was a few minutes after two in the afternoon, everyone would belch <laughs> and move around in their chair. They just stopped playing no matter what was going on. And uh, I didn't know what would happen. And a conductor uh, named Wilson, when it happened, he stood there and he laughed. And well, that the was orchestra good. laughed. It was, you know, it could have gone the other way, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, because you weren't doing what you did later, like during the, the mid-1960s, you helped Charlotte Mormon uh, organize her annual avant-garde festival in New York City. So you already were uh, identifying yourself with avant-garde music? It was. Uh, I had very much, I had, I had um, let's see, been introduced through my parents <laughs> to another local boy. He was a little older than me who had gone, I went to Columbia and he, he was a few years ahead of me at Columbia, a guy named Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I think I've up, heard of that. that you've heard guy. of him, yeah. <laughs> so I think, in fact, the word was uh, my father and mother talked to his parents, and they said, you know, both of our kids are kind of nutcases. They should meet each other. <laughs> and um, Sue Ginsburg uh, and the community in poetry, that, 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 and also through my work in ethnomusicology, that I really wound up with what's happening. Also, the fact is I've always had a... A, a sense of, of of being a small business guy, and I think putting on events with Charlotte Mormon and so forth um, came came out of my sense that look, I was able to do that and make a living, and so therefore that's what I was going to do with my life. I felt I could chart my own course because of of, of that organizational approach and. That too was my parents' thing. They were, you know, at those in those days, psychiatrists were small business people. They were not, as in today's world, uh, totally part of large medical uh, <laughs> monopolies. So, um, I, my mother showed me how, and, and you know, how the bookkeeper took track, you know, kept track of patients and and their billing and so forth. And so, it was not only natural as I started to be interested in this area that I met a promoter uh, named Norman Seaman, who was putting on, he had a concert club and he would give away seats on his unused nights. He would block by Carnegie Hall and a variety of halls uh, in Midtown and do concerts and then give it to avant-garde musicians to do more experimental things. And then to people like his brother, who was a concert pianist, uh, to be able to play classical music for for audiences. Then he knew how to create audiences. He had formed a concert club and he introduced me to Charlotte Mormon, mm. who was a, a very, a very ill person most of her life. And so I was one of many people who Norman put together with Charlotte to help her do what she was doing. He really liked her work. He really liked her. And she was really a sick person. She suffered from tumors of all description and she was in pain and, um, even even at the very point at the pinnacle of her career, she was she it, it was a real obstacle for her to just get through the day, get through the day and organize things. So I was kind of in in, in that small community of support for 
for Charlotte that was not just music, but, you know, the practical side of life. But it sounds to me like you didn't want to get locked into any one thing. Most people wind up just joining a group and staying there for a long time. You seem to be all over the place from the start. Well, I think that I looked at music. I was, first of all, cross-culturally oriented, and I was very... I'd been deeply moved by the power of living in Passaic, New Jersey, which was a very diverse town, had more synagogues and churches of various flavors. The uh, Eastern Church was there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. There were so many parades and so forth. And so I had such a rich Morgusborg of uh, experience in my hometown. Uh, and from that, I think it was only natural to um, continue to explore other, other fields. As well, I had to earn a living, and so I had to be um, a bit of a farmer and uh, do a little of this and a little of that uh, in order to survive. And, and I think that the, um, the one thing that I had learned from my parents was they had their own small laboratory. They had a brainwave machine at home. They had nurses working for them. They had a small organization, and I learned from the beginning to build a recording studio, and I always have a associates of various sorts in order to be able to accomplish something. So I think that model was what, what worked for me. And since there were so many interesting challenges going on as media was evolving, film score never was the same thing, still isn't. Uh, jingles always were very diverse. And so I wound up, um, by virtue of being in New York, um, ab ab able to do many, many different things because it was necessary to survive. So you did soundtracks for Francis Thompson's NASA Moonwalk One, Ken Russell's Altered States, Eleanor Anton's Man Without a World, and uh, you designed music and sound for the 13 parts of Time Life's America series. Well, I think that I was lucky in those days since I had built the studio uh, that I could work cheap. I could be my own engineer or bring a good engineer in. And I discovered that by being able to do sound design and music both, that I was in a niche that was in, where I could get interesting work. And it was that it was also the way I thought. I didn't see a great deal of difference between music and, and natural sound. And they were both expressive. And it was a question of using them in as, as, as a smart chef might use various kinds of plants and, and such from a garden. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Charlie Morrow. Let's listen to a different kind of music from him now.
composition by Charlie Morrow called A Little Time for Juan, performed by Roy Hargrove on flugelhorn, Benny Green on piano, Lenny White on drums, and Buster Williams on bass. Uh, <laughs> you did a lot of jazz, actually. I did. I've been very blessed to be able to work with the greats. That was a pretty good and, group. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, that was one of the high points of my uh, composer's life. I remember when that, that was the first take. I couldn't believe it, you know? It was like, here, let's try it, like I said, you know? <laughs> I was in tears. Because they, not... because they did it so well. I, I'm sorry we yeah. couldn't play the whole thing. It's a long track, and yeah, we only have a limited amount of time. But uh, it's pretty wonderful music. There is a whole bunch of other stuff on this CD that you composed, uh, including probably uh, the most famous thing, Train to the Plane, with Kevin Mahogany doing the vocal on it. Train to yes. the Plane, you, you were commissioned to do that for, because people weren't taking the train to the plane? Well, there was an advertising agency involved, uh, and uh, the partners in the agency wrote that. They dreamed it up, and they um, you know, engaged me to make it come to life with music, uh, with a Alf called Herman and Rosner, Harvey Herman and Charlie Rosner, two very brilliant and very special guys who, uh, you know, had devised this campaign. I mean, it was uh, it was part of, um, you know, a, a visual campaign as well. They've had cards in the subways and so forth. And they had the concept of the train to the plane. So writing a song uh, was only part of their big idea. Hmm. Well, it's a far cry from another thing that you did when you were with the New Wilderness Foundation. That doesn't exist anymore, does it? No, the foundation doesn't. Um, I've uh, made a business called New Wilderness in, in Vermont because I have, uh, at this point, thousands of recordings and publications that I've done in the Charlie Morrow archive and in, in Vermont. And so we've incorporated a, a, a New Wilderness business in order to... Uh, republish a lot of the um, both print and audio and video all the publications from from that period which uh, at the moment pe people are are very interested in well on a, on august 9th 1974 you and members of the new wilderness preservation band boated out into little neck bay in queens to perform a concert for and with fish using amplified woodwinds moog synthesizer, fish recordings, and vocals. You were hoping that your chance might lead to interspecies communication? Yes. Um, I think the review in the paper said fish style at Art's concert. <laughs> it was one of those situations where we attracted more, more press than fish <laughs> at the time. Uh, you know, remember, this was the morning between Nixon's resignation and Ford being sworn in at lunch. So we, there we were on a Friday morning, August 9th. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and everything that was, was, was news was out, was out there. Gabe Pressman was in a boat. I mean, it was just a hilarious, you know, um, un, unreal event uh, in that respect. So the fish never did get to have a chance to uh, chirp back at us. Uh, they, they do make sounds. <laughs> it wasn't a shock. Well, there is interspersed interspecies communication with Dogs, for example, 
Dogs yes. understand many words. Cats, perhaps, as well. Some other animals. Horses. But that's, that's I think that... I think that you, we, I had started working with field peepers as well as fish language because uh, they had such simple language that you could, and they seemed to be playing games with sound. Mm -hmm. So they, they were sort of similar. One of the um, uh, kind of sound uh, that you get from fish is, a, is, is from the um, toadfish. And, and uh, sometimes it's called a sailor fish and they honk, they go, oh. Mm -hmm. And so you hear a group of them echoing each other. So you hear like, oh, oh. Uh, 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 and there would be a leader going like, oh, uh, and the other guys go, oh, 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 imitate it. And they do a rhythm like, oh, 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 and the others would follow. And then at a certain point, another one would try to take over and do, oh, 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 and they'd start to follow along with that. It was such simple, audible patterns of echoing and taking over the leader role that we actually could... Um, Get into get into something that sounded like a sounded like a dialogue to an audience. <laughs> do, you th do you think fish make different sounds in different parts of the world? If you did this, something similar now in Helsinki, do you think you would have heard very different kinds of fish noises? I think so. Hmm. I think that definitely. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on the internet uh, recordings of fish sounds because there's. You know, there's quite a lot of noise under the sea. In fact, that's one of the reasons that uh, ecologists are trying to eliminate explosions in the ocean, for example, and um, and loud ship noises because it disturbs the uh, communication between the various species. Because there is a, quite a bit going on under the sea. We've kind of run out of time, but you've written an autobiography called Years, Places, Names. You're 80 years old. Uh, have you ever considered retiring? I don't think so. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I look forward to our next my, visit. <laughs> Unfortunately, we got to end it there, Charlie. Thank you so much for being on our show today. And thank you so much for having me. And everybody, please check out Immerse Podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. In fact, uh, we'll put a little bit of Charlie Morrow's music behind me now. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of nearly 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays, 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'd be happy to send you a WBAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We're the only station in New York that does. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI. 
org, And please be sure to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Wednesday when Franz Duval will discuss his book, Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Hope to see you then.